This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. Animals have evolved in remarkable ways to the demands of life in the ocean. But can they now adapt to the new challenge, living alongside us? Marine life makes up 80% of all species on Earth. But even out in the open ocean, the impact of human activity is being felt by species large and small. From fishing, to shipping, to oil and gas fields, human industry has been changing the behaviour of some species and even pushing others towards extinction. But sometimes, humanity's exploits in the ocean have a positive impact on marine biodiversity. Piers, seawalls and shipwrecks become artificial reefs, attracting marine life and boosting local biodiversity. And human presence in the oceans is about to explode, with the huge growth in the number of offshore wind farms being built. In 2020, there was 40 gigawatts of installed offshore wind energy. By 2050, that number is expected to reach 630 gigawatts. That's more than a 15-fold increase over the next 30 years. And that will mean thousands of new turbines popping up across the world's oceans. But what does that all mean for the ocean's biodiversity? And what are we doing to understand that impact? Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Fugro to learn about how the offshore wind industry is trying to understand the impact wind farms have on marine biodiversity. The first step when looking to build a wind farm in the UK is to go to the Crown Estate. We've been leasing and licensing and managing the seabed for offshore wind for 20 years. Without any shadow of doubt, the UK is 
one of the world's leading markets for offshore wind. We were key in commercializing fixed foundation offshore wind. Tim Stiven is the Marine Senior Development Manager at the Crown Estate. The Crown Estate is a significant national landowner in the UK, with a diverse £16 billion portfolio that includes urban centres, development opportunities and the seabed and much of the coastline around England, Wales and Northern Ireland, playing a major role in the UK's world-leading offshore wind sector. And I think most importantly, when we say we're a company for a nation, what that means in practical terms is that the profit we make is returned to the government. And we also have a purpose to support the development of social and environmental value alongside as a core part of our mission. The Crown Estate manages virtually all of the UK seabed, from the average low watermark out to 12 miles into the sea. So everyone looking to use the seabed for commercial purposes has to go through the Crown Estate's tendering process. In the past, when we've awarded seabed rights, land rights effectively for development through our tender process, then developers would go on, they would conduct a range of environmental and engineering surveys, they would design their wind farm, they would use that data set to make their application for planning consent. Obtaining consent, they would apply to the government or bid in a government auction for a contract for the revenue, for the offtake of the, the energy. Uh, and all of that would get them to the front doorstep of taking their final investment decision, which would lead to construction. Now, what's taken me 30 seconds to describe takes them sort of somewhere between six and 10 years um, and hundreds of millions of pounds to achieve. The planning and design phase for an offshore wind farm can take eight to 10 years, which is longer than the three to five year construction period. And part of that planning process is going through an environmental impact assessment. And once they've got their agreement for lease, so they've got an exclusive right to that, that area of sea, they'll then have five years to put in all of their applications to the Secretary of State for their development consent order. And that will include an environmental impact assessment. Uh, it'll include lots of consultation with different stakeholders and it'll include outline designs because you need to have the outline design in order to understand what the potential impacts are. And, um, and so uh, the EIA will go through a scoping phase where they say of all the things in the world, what, what do we think we're going to affect? They'll go through the, the preliminary environmental assessment where they say, well, you know, these we think are the, the potential effects. These are probably the ways in which we're going to mitigate them. Dan Smith is the global solution owner for offshore wind site appraisal at Fugro. Then once you've got to consent, you then will have made a number of commitments. And, and these can number to hundreds of commitments. Many of them will be based on management plans and documentation. So you'll be saying, OK, a fixed period prior to construction, we will develop a plan to show you how we're going to manage this potential impact and we'll agree it with the relevant people and we'll have all of that in place so our contractors to understand how they are meant to operate so that we can avoid impacts. But then the other ones will be more along the lines of what well, we've done an assessment, we recognize there's a potential effect and we're going to monitor it. So maybe they'll monitor underwater noise or maybe they'll monitor the seabed before and after the construction and then a number of years into construction. 
and and these monitoring areas are, are quite challenging uh, because basically putting anything out to sea is expensive. If potential impacts on biodiversity are identified during the EIA process, they will first try to design it out and mitigate its impact. So it could be underwater noise from piling. You can install bubble curtains, which stop the progress, the dissipation of noise through the water. So, for example, if we use underwater noise, you may commit to installing that bubble curtain, but you would also commit to a certain operational procedure and you'd commit to having marine mammal observers on your, your vessels and, and and those marine mammal observers would be would be monitoring what the contractors are doing and how the installation is going, which is then reported back to the relevant regulator. Pre-construction and during construction, along with marine mammal monitoring, there are many other types of environmental survey that might take place. There's benthic surveys looking at things living on the seabed, bird surveys and fish surveys. But the process for all these surveys is very manual. And while it can be done before and during construction, when a lot of manual work and other surveys are being done alongside the EIA, during the decades-long life of a wind farm, manual environmental monitoring becomes very difficult. I would say that one of the biggest lacks of information at the moment is the longer-term monitoring. I don't believe that there has been a, a, um, a huge amount of long-term monitoring that's been undertaken. Paul English is an environmental consultant at Fugro. So far, I think that you know there have been a few studies that have been undertaken for over about 10 years or so. But when you consider a, an offshore wind farm, could be operational for 20, 30 years, or even more if it's repowered. Ten-year study isn't too long. While environmental studies do take place, over the long term, there are still many unknowns. So the UK has had a long history of environmental monitoring of offshore wind farms as part of their licence conditions. Um, not all of that monitoring has been totally effective, and some of some questions still remain. One of those questions is, what are the effects at close range? So what are the effects immediately adjacent to each and every offshore wind farm? By this, I mean, are there potential enrichment effects? The problem offshore wind has, compared to oil and gas, is the pure number of structures and the vast area those structures cover. Once you license an oil and gas facility, it's usually one or a few structures that, that, get, that get built. With offshore wind, a license is usually associated with dozens or scores of offshore wind farm structures. So um, there's, a, there's a scale difference. And all those turbines require a lot of people and vessels to undertake the monitoring. There's a general constraint in the offshore wind sector of vessels and people. The, the scale of an offshore wind farm compared to the scale of an oil and gas site is you know, several orders of magnitude different. So you need to employ your, your vessels through a larger period of time to undertake the surveys, whether those be for engineering or for environmental surveys. That means currently you would send people out on those vessels and those people would then be utilised for that period of time as well. So that means that they can't then be doing work on another wind farm. So there's the... The scale and the, and the manualness of the, of the assessments. 
there's the question out there, right? Mm -hmm. Like when we have all these offshore wind farms out there, how are we going to scale all these processes up? Because it's not just how you collect the data, it's also who is going to analyze all that data, who is going to manage all that data, right? Angela Martinez-Quintana is a senior environmental specialist for Fugro based in the US. So you actually, this happens all the time. You, you have sensors that become more sensitive, cameras that become better, uh, you know, boats that become faster, everything, cameras that become smaller, better, easier, user-friendly. So you get up with all this information, very fast available for you, but then who is going to actually look through all the videos and, and, and count all the species and, you know, that, so there are different, different um, in the workflow, there are different bottlenecks, right? So to tackle this issue, Fugro is turning to new technology. We should try and do more with, with the vessels that we have. So, for example, we're investing in uh, a project called BeWild, which is uh, under a Dutch subsidy. And that's to use the USV, which would be used for an asset inspection. USV meaning Fugro's Blue Essence uncrewed surface vessel. So not for the surveying, but for the monitoring and inspection of the assets, which is what you need to do for the warranty of your, your offshore wind farm. So if you're there, you could be taking other things while you're doing it. So we're looking at then, well, how do we take eDNA samples? How do we take water samples, which we can then analyze? How do we use the same video uh, imagery for understanding the benthic ecology? And you can apply the same logic to lots of things. We send out, you know, you have to do a, a range of geophysical assessments. And we find that actually it's better and faster for an offshore wind developer if you also do your environmental assessments or your, some of your environmental surveys from the same vessel at the same time, because you've got one campaign. One of the monitoring methods Dan mentioned there was eDNA, or environmental DNA, a promising solution to the difficult task of measuring an area's biodiversity. Right now, the, the, the methods that, that they use to quantify fish is trolling. So you have fishing boats that go there, they grab all the fish, they do this, like they can do 30 or 40 uh, trolls every three, three months to offshore capture seasonality and so on. You have your marine biologists on, on the boat. Uh, they actually uh, sort all the animals on tables. They weigh them, they measure them. It's very time consuming and they, it's, very, it's a very destructive method. And this is how they, they are actually doing the surveys for fish. Measuring biodiversity this way also means you often miss species that are more rare in that area. But eDNA offers the potential to capture any species that has been present in that area. So if you can take a volume of that, of that water and then you pass it through a particular filter uh, so that you then end up with basically a sludge which you can then analyse, it will tell you the presence of different types of species. So it gives you a, a variety of the species that are in that volume of water at that particular time, at that particular location. It doesn't tell you how many there are. I think it actually tells you whether they were alive or dead. It's just that they were there. eDNA also has the potential to allow you to be far more localised and targeted in looking at an area's biodiversity. If you want a bit more targeted information, 
you really you know say you want to know what's right at your foundation then you'd want to be right at your foundation to get that information and that's kind of why we're looking at how we're how we can take these from our ROVs because they'll be right on the location of the of the foundation and it'll give you that sort of the 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 information about the species right there ROVs are remotely operated vehicles and eDNA is still in the early stages of development and more work will be needed to scale it up and replace fishing boats as a monitoring method. So environmental DNA is actually very good with certain species, with fish, with marine mammals, and not a, maybe not as good with certain invertebrates, right? You also have biomass out of environmental DNA. You can have number of species, you know, it's more like a presence, absence kind of tool, right? So yes, it is a great tool and, and they are exploring it because it would be very much easier to scale the monitoring up with this technique that doing trawlers. If eDNA and ROVs are able to scale up the data collection process, the industry will reach another bottleneck, processing and interpreting that data. Because again, you can have very sensitive uh, uh, sensors or very high quality imaging, but if you don't have actually the main power to process that information and transform it in results and analyze it, it, it doesn't matter. The other process is having uh, AI that is going to help you to go through videos or through acoustic data or, or through images faster to identify species and to be able to analyze the data faster. Exciting technological developments like AI monitoring, ROVs and eDNA have the potential to revolutionise how offshore monitoring takes place. But right now, the more manual methods are still required. The UK has had offshore wind for over 20 years, so plenty of data has been collected and the Crown Estate is trying to bring data together to best utilise the seabed. To do this, they have been building a digital twin of the seabed around the UK. For us, what it means is an ability to characterise the whole of our seabed. So to understand the geology, uh, to understand which bits of seabed are valuable for which purposes. So we're talking about offshore wind, but we also manage the seabed for carbon capture and storage for telecoms cables, uh, for electrical cables, for gas pipes, uh, for aggregates extraction. And we see new sectors emerging like natural habitat, markets for natural habitats and nature restoration. So for us, what a digital twin in inverted commas means is an ability to understand, you know, pretty much in any given square kilometer, what is the best use of the seabed, given all of those competing purposes. So that means we need data about the geology of the seabed, about the metocean conditions of the wind wave and current climate. Uh, we need data about the natural environment and the species uh, that, that sort of live, you know, in the sea and on the sea and above the sea. And we are incrementally building a set of tools that gives all of that at our fingertips and allows us to make the best possible decisions 
the key thing about it, I think, and I'm, we're really beginning to see this work very well and very powerfully in a, in a number of contexts, is not, it's not our decision to take. Ultimately, accountability for the decision rests with us. I think the really powerful thing we can do is make that available to diverse communities of people and say, here's the data, here's the evidence. You know, what's the balanced decision? So digital twin, very popular term to us, a set of methods and tools that allow us really quite granular understanding of our coast and our seas that allow us to bring people together to make the best decisions we can in the interest of the country. The Crown Estate is also using its position to push cooperation within the industry, to share knowledge and data so best practices can improve in the UK and around the world. We're particularly proud, I think, to say that we have, I think, a leading role globally in helping people access and organise information about the environment. So um, a number of things we do. The first is our what we call our marine data exchange. And all of the data which is collected by developers as they design and consent their projects comes to us and is stored by us and after a period where um, it's no longer commercially sensitive is published by us in, a, in the marine data exchange which you can interrogate so all of that data exists in one place and can be used by others for, for other beneficial purposes and it's been running for uh, 10 years it's, it's had its 10, 10th birthday very recently and what we see is uh, the information from 3,000 surveys representing 260 terabytes of data, which is freely available to anybody who wants to access it and thinks that they may have a use for it. The Crown Estate also funds and leads the Offshore Wind Evidence and Change programme. This is a unique £50 million initiative that brings together a 27-member steering group spanning government, industry and environmental organisations to collate and share information that will help speed up the planning and consenting process, protect wildlife and fishing, while promoting greater biodiversity across the UK. And across the world, organisations are pushing for all industry stakeholders to take environmental monitoring seriously. So, for example, the UN Global Compact are convening meetings at the moment, which include various people from across the the, um, the offshore wind sector, including companies like Fugro and other contractors, offshore wind developers, regulators, etc., from across different areas. Because if you just look at, say, um, the North Sea. The North Sea has a number of different countries that all have coastlines on the North Sea. Those countries have different regulations, they've got different governments, they've got different cultures, and they will prioritize different things. But for an offshore wind developer or any other maritime developer to want to have a positive effect on biodiversity, it it needs to feed up to a, a larger goal. And there's a lot of challenges in that, not least the politics. There, there is a, I think it's called the North Sea Commission, which was part of the, the European Union. And when Brexit happened, the UK stopped being part of it. And they've, they've only recently rejoined that. And you need that discourse going on. Then you've got the problem of, well, 
you've got a number of different private entities developing very large projects and they need to be able to if, if you really want to understand the cumulative effect you need to get those projects to share their data to somebody else Environmental impact assessments are often blamed for slowing down planning approval and delaying a project. But getting a better understanding of the impact of wind farms on marine life can both improve and speed up the design process. And it's not just making a negative impact. There are plenty of studies that show how offshore wind farms can boost biodiversity. Right now, they are not going to allow fishermen to fish where the wind farms are, right? Especially trawlers, right? Because they can actually damage the cables of uh, doing the trolling, right? So I wonder if this continues like this and, and, and they actually are not going to be able to do this. I wonder if these wind farms are going to become marine, like marine protected areas, like no-take areas where actually fish go and reproduce. So it could have a very, a very positive effect if... Uh, if they are not allowed to fish with certain type of practices, right? Wind farms that have been licensed and that, that are operating currently have currently been built on uh, shallow water areas and predominantly sedimentary areas. These areas are characterised by sedimentary-dwelling species. So these are animals that burrow into the sediment or crawl on top of the sediments, and they typically uh, extract their food by feeding within the sediment, subsurface deposit feeding, or they get their food from deposits that have fallen on the sediment surface, so they're deposit feeding animals. When you introduce a hard structure, such as an offshore wind farm foundation, that hard structure provides opportunity for a whole host of other types of species to, to, to colonise. So these species will be attaching and encrusting species like algae or barnacles or mussels, sponges, sea anemones, etc. So they will come uh, and, and colonise the hard structure. And these animals are typically filter feeding animals. So you get a, a, a different type of community colonising the same space as your sedimentary community. And automatically that, that provides a, a huge increase in biodiversity. This is called biofouling or marine biofouling by engineers and can have a negative impact on offshore wind. I think there's two schools of thought, really, and depending on who you are. Obviously, installing devices and uh, hard surfaces offshore uh, provides opportunity to, to increase biodiversity. So at a very superficial level, yes, you are increasing biodiversity. Ergo, it's a good thing. However... These animals weren't meant to be there in the first place. It is a change in the natural order of things. How that change manifests itself on a wider ecosystem level, we're still trying to understand that at the moment. Understanding how these small localised changes will affect biodiversity across a much larger scale is still unknown. This is why we need to continue monitoring the impact. It's fair to say that the interaction is still being researched at a at a large scale and especially at a cumulative scale because ecology and uh, nature they don't really care about your your project boundaries but if you've got one project and then another project and another project that's all going to have a cumulative effect on on different things in the area 
it is totally possible that it's going to be an increase in, in, in biodiversity. However, because you are creating now like stepping stones in the ocean where they were not any, so it can be also a way to have invasive, invasive species actually moving from one pillar to the next. As we continue to monitor the biodiversity around offshore wind farms and get a better understanding of its impact, we will learn how to mitigate the damaging aspects and promote the elements that boost biodiversity. As we're building these very large projects at a very uh, uh, a scale and a pace that we've never really done before, we do need to, to take the time to make sure that as we do it, we're understanding what the potential effects are so that we don't have un unforeseen consequences in the future. The more knowledge that we have about the impacts on biodiversity, the better we can design our wind farms and the faster we get them built. Well, within 10 years time, I would like to see the um, need for monitoring reduced because we understand the impacts and all parties have accepted what those impacts are. We, we, we understand the spatial scale over which change would occur. We accept the temporal scale over which change would occur as well. My general feeling is pretty positive. I find everybody in the offshore wind sector is there because they want to be part of doing something good. They, they all have a, a genuine desire to improve the world. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Johnny Dowling, and hosted by me and Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our own automated monitoring system is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.